Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. You took time from all the stuff you're doing to be here. When you first saw that slide, how many of you thought we were going to talk about Christmas carols? Right? Well, we've been talking about the songs from the Gospel of Luke, from the original Christmas songs. And I hope you've been blessed as we've looked at the songs of Mary and Zechariah and the angels. And today we're going to look at the fourth song in the Gospel of Luke, the song of Simeon. And Simeon was a man who had been waiting for the Messiah for a long time. And Christmas is a season of waiting, and waiting is hard. A couple months ago in October, I was at my daughter's house in Atlanta. And my granddaughter, Emily, who's four years old and had just turned four years old, was bouncing around on my bed, as kids like to do and as grandparents try to keep them from doing. But of course, you know, that's the only time you can bounce on a bed is when Grammy's there. And while she was bouncing around my bed, she could see the top shelf in my closet, which is where Tracy and Will hide their presents for her. And I hadn't realized she could see that. And she saw that there was an Elsa doll up in my closet. And she had just had a birthday. She had gotten the Anna doll from, from the Frozen movies. And so she thought I was giving her the Elsa doll, that I had put it up there, and it was for her birthday, too. And she really wanted it, desperately. So we went back and forth about this for a long time, and she wouldn't give up, so I knew that the only thing I could do was to distract her, which is my greatest strategy as a grandparent. And I'm the queen of distracting. So I pulled out my phone, pulled up a YouTube video of Let It Go, and I, we sat down and we watched it, and she was full on singing and singing Let It Go, Let It Go. She forgot all about the doll, and it was great. And I later moved it so she couldn't see it. And she asked about it maybe once after that, but you know, out of sight, out of mind. I'd successfully distracted her. But Christmas is all about waiting. And waiting is hard for kids as they wait for their presents, and even for us adults. Sometimes as we wait for presents, or as we wait for better sales and prices, or as we wait for people and seeing friends and family at Christmas. And we wait for the Christmas spirit, too for that feeling of Christmas. We want that joy, that feeling. The Christmas season is also called the Advent season, and Advent means arrival. And the Advent season, the arrival, the coming of Jesus, is something we wait for in three ways. The first is, of course, we wait for the birth of the baby at Christmas. The second is that we wait for the second coming of Jesus. He's coming again as king, bringing his kingdom, and we wait for that too. But there's a third sense of his coming, that Jesus is coming now to our hearts. And we can experience his presence now. And we wait for that, that feeling of Christmas. We expect the Christmas season to fill us with something. And this third coming of Christmas, experiencing his presence now, is hard. Because like Emily, we get distracted. There's so much going on in the Christmas season. It's hard to think about Jesus, to stop and take a breath and to remember that Jesus really is the reason for the season. And if you're not done wrapping your presents, or if you're going home to cook and bake, you're probably really distracted right now, having a hard time concentrating. But today, right now, is a good moment to stop, to settle your heart, to think about Jesus, and to worship him. Today we're going to look at Simeon's song, and it's a song of how God meets us in the waiting. 
It's a song of gratitude and worship. So let's turn to Luke 2, verses 25 to 35. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can read along with me or follow along on the screen. Luke 2, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon is waiting for the Messiah to come to bring consolation or comfort to rescue his people. And we don't know a lot about Simeon, but there are a few eye-opening details in this little passage. He's described with three unusual and remarkable facts. First, the Holy Spirit was on him. He's righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit's on him. And this is kind of new and unusual, because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and went. But here, the Holy Spirit is on him. It points to the continual presence of the Spirit, and it points to what will become normal in Jesus. Jesus is with us always, and in the Holy Spirit, God is with us. Second, the Holy Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would see the Messiah. Simeon knew that the Messiah was coming in his lifetime, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. He had this personal promise from God. He knew something no one else did, that the Messiah was coming soon. In the other three songs, an angel spoke to Mary and Zechariah and the shepherds. But here, God himself and the Holy Spirit spoke to Simeon. He had a word from God. And there are people today who claim they have a word from God, and sometimes we're a little skeptical. They claim that things are going to end, the world's going to end. And we feel skeptical of those claims. But here, we can see that Simeon surely had a word from God. And then third, Simeon was moved by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple. He went to the temple courts at the exact same time that Mary and Joseph brought the baby to the temple. That's pretty good confirmation that this was the leading of the Holy Spirit. When things like that happen to us, we consider it coincidence, things that just happen by luck. But this was surely the leading of the Spirit. And because of these three facts, we might focus on Simeon as a pretty special person, which he was. And we might think we want to be more like Simeon, which would be a good thing to want. But don't miss another important truth here, which is that God is moving. God is active and moving in this 
passage, and the focus really isn't just on Simeon. He's open to the, and attentive to the presence of God. He's responsive to God's invitation because this is about what God is doing. God brings him to the temple. He brings them all to the dwelling place of God, this sacred place where God speaks, where God moves. And in Simeon's song of gratitude and worship, we see that the coming of Jesus reveals something about God and something about us. First, Jesus and his coming reveals something about God. In his song in verses 29 to 32, Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon praises God that he has fulfilled his promises, his promise to his people Israel and to Simeon himself. And God is a God who fulfills his promises. In the coming of Jesus, we see God's faithfulness to do what he promised. God is faithful to do what he promised and more. Think about the Old Testament story of God and his people that we've been looking at over the last few years. In Genesis, God created a world where people could thrive and flourish and where God could come and rest with them and dwell with them in a relationship of love. He made a promise to Abraham to bless him and to bless the world through him. He made a promise to Israel that he would be their God and they would be its people. To the exiles that he would restore them to the land and restore them to God's favor. And he made a promise to the prophets of a savior, a king, a kingdom that would never end. And God is at work fulfilling his promises. In Jesus, he is restoring his kingdom to this broken world, shining a light in the darkness. He's faithful to do what he promised and more. In Jesus, salvation has come with hope, peace, and a light. And that light is more than what the people of Israel expected. Jesus came for Israel, and he came for all nations. He was a light for revelation to the Gentiles, which meant he wasn't just coming for Israel, for his people. He's coming for the whole world, for all nations, for all people, for us. The Messiah, the Savior, Jesus is coming to bless all people. And in the coming of Jesus, we see that God is faithful to do what he promised and more. Simeon had been waiting for this, and he trusted, and he saw that God was faithful. And we can know this too, that God has come for us. Jesus, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus, which means he will save his people from his sin, from their sin. And God is faithful to save us to rescue us, to be with us, and to help us and bless us. The faithfulness of God is important to us. It matters that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises. When my grandkids, Kai and Grayson, were a little bit younger, when I would come to babysit, they would plan things for us to do. Sometimes we would play games, or we'd play Legos, or they'd bring out all their stuffies and we'd do something with them, or we'd have coloring contests and someone would have to be the judge and they didn't like me being the judge because I would never pick the winner. 
we would play Harry Potter and Star Wars and get all dressed up and I would have to be Kylo Ren <laughs> or Neville Longbottom. But they would always plan, and there would always be two things, because there was something Grayson wanted to do and something Kaya wanted to do. And they would talk about it, and one of the things would go first, and the other would promise, and the, the person who chose the first thing would promise that they would also do the second thing, if the second person did the first thing. And so we would play these games, and invariably the first thing was really fun and involved and took a long time, and we were engaged and involved, and the second thing got a little less energy and enthusiasm. And of course, the one who had chosen the second thing would get a little upset at the short shrift. And always the cry would be, you promised. You said you would do my thing too. You promised you have to do this and you have to be enthusiastic and all in about it. Because, you know, broken promises. Broken promises are sad. They're met with tears and anger and slam doors and shouting. And even as kids, we know the great and precious value of a promise. We parents and teachers were very careful, if we're aware of this, not to make promises about things we can't fulfill. But we learn, of course, that not everybody keeps their promises, that circumstances happen, and that we can't always expect it. But still, we all love a guarantee. We love people who keep their promises. The plumber who comes on time, the packages that get delivered in their exact window, the renovation that finishes when it's supposed to finish. We love a guarantee. We learn to trust people who keep their promise, and we call them over and over because we know we can count on them. And this is true of God, too. God is faithful. We can depend on him because he keeps his promises. And the Christmas story shows us that God is faithful to do what he promised. That's the reason the New Testament writers so often include Old Testament scriptures that we modern readers kind of skip over. We kind of feel like they're interrupting the flow of the thought. But for the Old New Testament writers, this was important, that God keeps his promises. Born in Bethlehem, to a virgin, in the family line of King David. All those things showed Israel that God was fulfilling his promises. The songs of Christmas we've looked at in the last three weeks, the song of Mary and Zechariah and the angels to the shepherds, all of those contained Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. God keeps his promises. We can trust him. We can count on him because we have seen what he can do. And Simeon saw God's promises to the world and to him personally, individually. He had the glorious promise that he personally would not die until he saw the Messiah. Not only does God make promises and keep his promises about the whole world on a macro level, but he makes promises to us personally, and he keeps his promises. He promises us hope, peace, joy, love comfort, strength, help when we need it, eternal life. And God is a God who keeps his promises. When we turn to God and believe that Jesus is real and follow him, we can trust him. And I saw that when I made a decision to believe in Jesus. 
was a 13-year-old kid who hated conflict, and I grew up in a dysfunctional family where there was a lot of conflict. Two younger brothers who loved to argue, and a dad who was a little domineering, and who they loved to argue with. And we were going on a summer vacation, and I didn't want to go because it was always just a time where we would be all six of us enclosed in a station wagon arguing about something. And I prayed that God would make this vacation good, that we would not fight. And that happened, and I was amazed, and I just thought, if that's what God can do, I want that. And I saw God direct me and guide me through college and young adulthood and as a wife and mother. And even when I divorced and my marriage failed, God never failed me. God was with me, always. He always provided and cared for me. And then when I became a pastor 18 years ago, I could trust that God was faithful. And I needed that because I was very insecure about all of this, especially this part, the preaching part. I enjoy the preparation and the study of a sermon, but I had to learn to enjoy this part, the public speaking part. I was always felt awkward and nervous, and I didn't like the way my voice sounded, and especially don't like that we're on video now, and when I look at myself, I really don't like the way I look and the way I move and the way I talk and, and all of it. But from the beginning, I held on to the promise of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul when he prayed for God to remove a physical problem, some pain he was experiencing, and God did not. God didn't remove the pain, he didn't solve the problem, but he gave him this promise. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I claim that promise for myself. And God has always used me in ways I don't expect. He didn't make me perfect. I still don't like watching myself on video. I, can, I watch Eric and I think, I don't have Eric's charisma. And I don't have Brandon's confidence in the pulpit. But God uses me anyway. He uses whatever I have. His power, his spirit work in ways I can't imagine. And then a few months ago, Pastor Kristen O spoke. And I've known Kristen since she was in third grade. I'm really glad she's here. I was really glad she was speaking. I was looking forward to it. But in the first three minutes of her message, all I could think was, she's so much better than me. <laughs> she's so poised and so cool, and she's got that sweater and that coffee cup, and <laughs> her voice is so beautifully expressive. She's so much better than me. And I tell you this not because I'm fishing for compliments. I don't need your reassurance and don't feel sorry for me. But I tell you this because I think we all have this reaction at times, this not good enoughness. She's so much better than me. He's so much cooler than I am. I don't belong here. They're better parents, a better family. They're better leaders, better Christians better looking, better dressed. And whatever we perceive as our weaknesses, we feel shame and envy and we compare. And we have that sense of not good enoughness. And it can be deadly to our sense of self and to our relationships. But when we have received the love and grace of God, we don't have to sit in that insecurity and that not good enoughness. God's promise is, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are God's handiwork. 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When you believe in Jesus and accept God's promise of eternal, abundant life and peace and forgiveness and hope and joy, you don't have to compare and feel less than. You are loved and accepted as you are in Christ. You are enough. And that's God's personal promise. And in those first three minutes of Pastor Kristen's sermon, when I thought she's so much better than I am, I didn't have to keep feeling bad. I knew something was going on in me, and so I just thought, what is this feeling? Oh, this is shame. Why am I feeling this? I'm comparing. I'm envying. I'm thinking about myself, not about the sermon. And I could pretty quickly identify it, recognize it, and turn to God and say, what's going on here? And I could thank God for Kristen and admire her giftedness and thank God for my giftedness. And I could feel good about the sermon, and, and I could listen to the insights Kristen had about the passage. And in the grace and love of God, the shame and envy disappear, replaced by gratitude. That's what God does when we believe him, when we receive him. In the coming of Jesus, we receive light, love, acceptance. In Jesus, God comes to dwell with his people, to bless them, to restore this broken world that is full of conflict and pain, and to restore us broken people who are full of insecurity and worry and fear and not good enoughness. God promised to establish his kingdom, to bring healing and wholeness to anyone who will receive it. And in the coming of Jesus, we see God's faithfulness to do what he promised and more. God is faithful. This is what Simeon's song tells us. And after his song in verses 34 to 35, it says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And the narrative takes an ominous tone here. It sounds a little dark. The Messiah has been born, but Simeon's song gives us a glimpse of what will happen, that he will not do exactly what they expected when they expected it. He won't look or act like a king. He won't immediately bring his kingdom to earth. There will be conflict, opposition, and danger, and not everyone will accept him as the Messiah. And in the coming of Jesus, people were confronted with a choice that revealed what was in their hearts and the falling and rising of many in Israel point to what will happen, to how people will respond to Jesus. He will not look or act like a king. He'll talk about humility and compassion and forgiveness, and he'll eat with sinners, touch lepers, call fishermen and tax collectors to be his friends and followers. And this will upset the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and they will not like it. Jesus will accuse them of being hypocrites, self-righteous, legalistic, without compassion for the people they were called to serve. And their hearts will be closed and cold, indifferent to the miracles they see. They'll hold fast to their rules and their laws and their status and their lifestyle, and they will reject Jesus as king. And the falling and rising of men in Israel point 
to this response in Israel. And Simeon says the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And this is true of us today, too. Our response to Jesus comes from the heart and reveals our thoughts, feelings, attitudes, desires. Our hearts can be cold and closed by pride and self-righteousness, too, or by fear or worry or insecurity. We can miss the love of Jesus and the joy of Christmas. Our response to Jesus comes from the heart. And in the coming of Jesus, we are confronted with a choice. We make a choice about Jesus that reveals our heart condition. We have a choice. And of course, I'm talking about a spiritual heart condition, but when you have a physical heart condition, you do something about it, right? You pay attention. You get help. You look for solutions. You do what the doctor says, or at least you try to do what the doctor says. You try to eat right, exercise, change your lifestyle. When you have a heart condition, your life depends on what you do about it. And that's true of our spiritual heart condition, too. We can pay attention and make choices that lead to healing and wholeness. How's your heart? What do you need from Jesus this Christmas, today? Jesus came for us to bring healing and wholeness to the brokenness in our world and in us. And that's the promise of Christmas, but it's not automatic. God is faithful, but we choose to believe him, to receive him, to invite him in, to worship him. We can miss it in all the Christmas activity. And maybe you've been busy and preoccupied and distracted, and today is a good day just to stop, to remember who Jesus is, to remember his faithfulness in your life, and to worship him as king. We can do that today. And maybe you've been feeling overwhelmed or worried, preoccupied with all the conflict that's going on in our world or in your life. Maybe you need rescue too. Like Simeon, we live in a broken world that's full of danger and conflict. But this morning, remember that God is faithful, that his grace is sufficient, that he is with you. This morning, bring your needy, humble heart to the God who loves you and wants to help you, who wants to be with you this morning, and tell him what you need. And maybe you're not sure about Jesus. Maybe some of you came today because it's Christmas and someone invited you or told you to come, and you're not so sure about all of it. God invites you to come with an open heart, to explore what the Bible says, to ask questions, to listen, to seek who God is. Open your heart to faith and to the God who is faithful, who wants to love you and bless you. We can think of Christmas as merely the coming of a baby a long time ago, but it's so much more than that. The Savior, the King, Jesus has come. He will come again. And he is here now with us. We can make the choice to receive his love, to invite him in, and to worship him with a whole heart. Tomorrow will be Christmas. 
and we'll open our Christmas presents. And like all of us, Emily will be excited and she'll open her presents and she'll find that Elsa doll that she saw on the top shelf of my closet two months ago. She got distracted. She's probably forgotten all about it. But when she sees it, she'll remember that it was in my closet. And she'll remember that she's been waiting for this doll for two months. What are you waiting for? And what will you remember today and tomorrow at Christmas? We get so distracted, but Christmas reminds us that God wants to love us, that God is here, and we can experience his love and grace. Remember that God is faithful. Remember that his grace is sufficient for you and for all that's going on in your life. Remember that he wants to help you and bless you and love you. Remember that he will be your light in the darkness. And then let's celebrate Christmas today, this morning. Let's celebrate with open hearts, humble hearts, whole hearts ready to worship God because the King of Kings is here. Let's pray.